Let's um, begin this evening. Open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 25. And if you can, let's stand as we read the Word of God, if you're able. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, uh, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For so all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took to him his wife, and did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And Lord, we're so blessed, uh, not only just to read about your birth and to know your name by just reading it, but to know your name now by being owned by you, by being related to you, by you calling us your own. You're our Savior. God, you, you have saved us from things that we really don't even have enable, or not able to comprehend completely. But that day when we're face to face with you, even more so will we give you praise and honor and glory when we see how great our salvation is. So thank you, Lord. Be glorified tonight, we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. So tonight I titled this time in the word, Why Did Jesus Come? We all know John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And sometimes, mistakenly, when uh, people hear that, their mind is this image of God, the creator of heaven and the earth, who somehow looks down and sees these cute, cuddly, little sweet people. And because we're cute and cuddly sweet, he sends his son down here. And he sends his son down here so that we can get along, so we can be shown how to prosper, so we can be shown how to do better or how to live a purpose-filled life. But know this, God's love for us is not an emotional love like we humans have. His love for us is much deeper than and much more purposeful than that because the Father's love for us is the one where he looks down, he sees us, and he sees we need help. And he knows exactly what we need. Now, we're at that time of year, Christmas time. At the time for us as Christians, we celebrate the birth of Christ, right? Our Savior, the greatest gift of all, the birth of Christ. In John one twenty nine, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First John uh, chapter 3, verse, he says, Jesus was magnified to what? To take away our sins. First John 4. Uh, I got to put my glasses on. Wow. 414, the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. And Ephesians 2, 8, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he goes on to say, it's not of ourselves, it's what? The gift of God. When God came down and became a baby in that stinky, dark, dingy, smelly animal stall, in a small hick town, a conquered country, a defeated people, he came to touch us deeply. He came to touch us purposely and personally. And he did that to truly come and meet our needs. You see, he's a gift of God. But for the gift of God to be fully appreciated, we need to understand it and use it for all that it is. Now, much in the fabric of the church today uh, is an American church that is working to reach the felt needs of the people. But there's a huge difference between what we as a people think our needs are and what our Father in heaven looks down and says, this is what your needs are. He knows we, what we have need of before we ask, we're told. Now, as you read the Gospels, the major uh, part of the Gospel message is, doesn't center on the birth of the Savior, but it centers on the life of our Savior. And the life of our Savior as He is fulfilling the law and the prophets. So when we ask the question, why did Jesus come? The answer, of course, is first and foremost, we needed a Savior. Because the Bible makes it clear that we were darkness, we were alienated from God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were at war with God. But there's more to unpack in that great gift that was given to us. Because Jesus' ministry here on the earth was to fulfill all the law and the prophets. And once we see this glorious truth, we see that in the Old Testament, there's three primary offices that God instituted for his people to meet their needs. Our salvation is glorious, is it not? I mean, if that were just it, that's enough. That's enough. But there's also our life with our Savior that we continue on as we sojourn in this strange world that we live in. And that life with our Savior includes Jesus as prophet, as priest, and as king. And it is in Jesus that all those Old Testament offices are completely and perfectly fulfilled. So that night, 2,000 plus years ago, wrapped in that manger was Jesus, the Messiah the one who would take away our sins. He'd die for our sins. But also there was Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And all three are connected, and all three folks have the best effect in our life as a unit. So let's look at first Jesus as our prophet. The prophet in the Old Testament was one who did what? Who revealed God to the people and represented the people to God. He revealed God to the people by speaking the word of God to the people of God. The prophet had to be courageous. He had to be bold. He had to be steadfast, willing to stand against a king who at any moment could take his life, and, and before a people who at any moment would be able to turn on a dime and basically come against him in the blink of an eye. Generally, the prophets were not well-liked. They were destructed and even feared. The prophet had to confront people. He had to confront people in their sin, their rebellion, their selfishness, and command repentance from them. It was the prophet of God who spoke the truth of God to the people of God. No matter how politically incorrect it might have been at the time, or unpopular the word of God might be to the people. 
You see, when the prophet spoke, one of two things happened in the heart of those who would hear. One thing would be repentance to brokenness, or the other was unrepentant to hard-heartedness. There really was no middle ground. Now the prophet is completely inextricably connected to the Word of God because their ministry was to proclaim the Word of God to God's people. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18, Moses speaks of this prophet to come. In 18:15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. And then in verse 18, the Lord says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke about. And in John 5.30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And then John 12, 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. But know this, Jesus is the superior prophet to all the other prophets that came before him, because all the other prophets that came before him spoke under God's authority, but Jesus is God, therefore he speaks of his own authority. In fact, they were amazed when he would t- teach. They would say, he speaks as, not like the others, he speaks as one with authority. And then again, over and over again, do we not hear him say in the New Testament, he says, I, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Or he says these words, he says, I tell you the truth. Those words one way or another are repeated about 50 times in the Gospels. And in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. The truth. How refreshing the truth is. Now the truth we know can be unpleasant at times when it convicts us. It can be uncomfortable at times when it challenges us. But know this, it's all good. The truth is always good. We know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's truth, right? When somebody says 2 plus 2 equals 4, it resonates with our soul and it fits reality. But when someone tries to tell us that 2 plus 2 is 5, or 2 plus 2 is whatever amount you want it to be, or they tell us that gender is fluid, that it's not just male and female, we can't find peace in those kind of statements because no matter how passionately and no matter how convinced that person and sincere that person is in saying those things to us, we cannot find peace because it's not true. It's not true. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the truth. He has the words of life, we're told, in John chapter 6, verse 67 and 68. The words of life. Now, politicians, some of my favorite people on the face of the earth, They are masters of using words. Words can be spoken in such a way that sound true, but not be true at all. There's a story of a young man who's going away to college, and he begins his freshman year, and he goes out for the track team. His father, you see, was very good at track when he was younger, so he wanted to try it for himself. But it turns out he wasn't really physically, uh, he didn't have athletic ability. But he goes out anyway. And so his very first race, it's only a two-man race, it's he and one other guy, and the other guy is the best miler in the whole county. 
So the race happens, and it wasn't even close. He literally was beaten by a mile. But not wanting to disappoint his father, he writes home and says this, Father, you'll be happy to know that I ran against Bill Williams. He was the best miler in the county. He came in next to last, while I, Father, came in second. Now that kind of twisting the truth, twisting the facts, that's what we expect from the world. It's political speech at its best, but it's unsettling because we can't find rest in those kind of things. But with Jesus, know this, when he speaks, he speaks straight up. It's straightforward. Because not only did he have authority, not only is the truth, he is the incarnate word of God. You see, the written word was given to us to reveal to us the incarnate word. So Jesus is not only the prophet who has the authority to speak truth, he is the truth. And he's the greatest preacher who has or ever will live. As our prophet, Jesus is not afraid to get in our face. He's not a, he doesn't shy back by taking his finger and just pointing us right in the chest and doesn't hesitate to attack our sin, point out our folly, to expose our selfishness and our rebellion by rebuking us with the truth, with the truth and commanding us to repent. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So why did Jesus come? We needed a prophet. We needed a prophet to speak truth into our lives. There's another need we had, and that's the priest. Now, the Old Testament priest was huge to the people of God. The priests, you see, were the mediators that stood between God and the people, and the people and the God represented God to the people and would take the people's cares and concerns and present them to God and, and show that there had to be a blood sacrifice to show them how serious sin was and to temporarily cover their sins. And at the end of their times together, you read in Numbers chapter 6, at the end of their times together, the priest would always pronounce a blessing on the people so that no matter what had happened and what had transpired and the offer, offering and sacrifice had been completed, the blessing would be given to let them know and remind them that, that God loves them, that God is with them. Now know this, it was not the high priest's job to point out sin. It was his job to deal with them. It was the prophet's job to point out sin. And we get a sense of this great truth about the Lord dealing with our struggles and our trials. I love it in Romans chapter 7. It's a familiar passage to you where Paul says, in essence, this. He goes, I just don't understand myself. The good I want to do, I don't do. And sometimes that which I know not to do is exactly what I end up doing. There's something in me that is not dead yet. It, it rears its ugly head once in a while, and there's a war going on inside of me, he says. He says, I'm a miserable person. Who's able to free me from this life of sin and death? And he goes, I thank God that is the answer is found in Jesus Christ, my Lord. So we see Jesus fulfills the actions and the, and the, pra, and the office of priest. And Hebrews were told, and if, you, if I encourage you tonight or tomorrow morning, read Hebrews 4 and 5. And he's presented and told he is our high priest. 
We read in, in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, that when, when it was time for her to deliver, we read these words, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And here we have the incarnation of God, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, it was in his humanity that God was able to identify with us in a way that means more something to us. It didn't lack for God, but it helps make that connection for us. He's fully God. And something, folks, honestly, I still haven't completely wrapped my mind around. I, I have to believe it by and take it by faith. Fully God and fully man. He alone, because of that, is the perfect mediator between us and the holy God. As our high priest, he is required by law to offer a sacrifice, right? You know all about this. He had to deal with our sin, and he offered his life, his blood for our sin that we might be made whole. Now, as believers, his position as priest in our life didn't stop at the cross, his position as priest continues on because we're told in the Bible that right now he is at the right hand of God. He's there before the God, interceding on our behalf, representing us before of the Father. And practically and wonderfully, this is what this means, that, that Jesus is our priest. It means this, folks. He knows us. He knows us. He pays attention to our lives. He cares for us. Jesus knows what we have need of before we ask. Jesus is the one who knows our thoughts from afar. The Lord is the one who knows the numbers of hairs on our head. And he knows the longings of our heart. And he knows the many concerns that clutter our minds at time. One aspect of this office of Christ on our behalf works out this way. The religious people of his day and the self-righteous people of our day inside and outside the church they can stand at a distance and point out the sins and the faults in others in a prophetic way, if you would. But they fail and are able to take that person to the next step, which would be to bring us to the only one who has a remedy for the problems that we have. Jesus came to serve. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. We live in a world, and it seems that, again, each generation, more and more people want to be served and fewer people want to serve. Jesus is our high priest, and he served us ultimately by giving his life for us, but he serves us continually as he ever lives to make intercession for us. He lives to meet our needs because he's been where we are. He not only preaches to us as our prophet, but he's able to sympathize and empathize with us as our priest. And I love Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what do we have so far? 
We have Jesus as our prophet, the one who speaks the truth to us plainly and boldly. We have Jesus as our priest, the one who serves us humbly and love with love and peace and mercy. Which brings us to the last one, which is Jesus, our King. When Jesus stood before Pilate in John chapter 18, he was standing there as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the Bible, in the New Testament, when you read of Jesus as Lord, it's saying this in the ownership um, application of King. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying basically he's King, he's owner, he is sovereign over everything. In Matthew 8, 2, he's recognized uh, as Lord by a leper. In uh, Thomas said to him in John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God after the resurrection. Uh, in 2 Peter, Peter alone states four times he says, Lord and Savior, referring to Jesus. Jesus, we're told in Matthew 28, 18, it has as authority over heaven and the earth. And we're told in Luke 6, 5, he is Lord of the Sabbath. We go on and on. He's the only sovereign Lord in Jude 1, 4. And Revelation 17, 14, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as our Lord, as our King, guess what? We're commanded to obey him. We're commanded to obey him. This quote, he says, there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, cannot say, that's mine. That's mine. It's all his. Look, as king, as Lord, he rules over angels and demons, over saints and ain'ts, over young and old, men and women, rich and poor, Republicans and Democrats, yes, Democrats, the wise and the foolish, the living and the dead. In fact, in Luke 6, 46, and Matthew 7, 21, and John chapter 13, we're, we're reminded as our King, as our Lord, that we are to obey Him. We're to do what He says, because He's sovereign over His subjects. You see, once that transaction takes place, when we're the sinner and we receive Jesus as our Savior and receive His blood sacrifice on our behalf, once that happens, that's his ownership right now. We're his. It's not that happens and we wait a while when it's convenient. At that point, we're his. He is the sovereign rule. This means that as our king, folks, he's Lord over our marriage. He's Lord over our work, over our home, over our TV, over our phones, over our credit cards, and even our car horn. The last refuge of our flesh is our car horn. He's Lord over that. So Jesus demands and he deserves our obedience and our loyalty to him as king. So let me close with some application. The people of the Old Testament, they had prophet, priest, and king. But that wasn't enough. Uh, they had things that helped take care of their needs, uh, but they had to, as we know, offer yearly sacrifices to make a covering for their sins, and next year it had to happen again. But once having received our redemption by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by His sacrifice on the cross, Jesus, our Savior, continues in our life as prophet, priest, and king. Now listen, because if He's not prophet, priest, and king as well, we will end up having an incomplete picture of Him, 
an incomplete understanding of him, an incomplete relationship with him. Let me illustrate that. Some of us as Christians, not in this room, but there's others outside this room. Some of us want Jesus as prophet and king, but no priest. You see, this leads to the Christian where there sometimes can be a lack of love, mercy, and grace in their life. Because they love Jesus, the prophet, Oh, the bold truth teller, the bold demander of repentance. And they love the fact that Jesus is king and rules over life with an iron hand with all authority. But for this Christian, it seems that God can come across as cold and distant and stern and harsh. They see God, he's sitting on his throne, but he's unable to get off his throne to really touch me and really help me. Uh, This error creates a Christian who's either down in despair or lifted up in pride. It creates a Christian who's not one of worship, humility, or even joy because they see Jesus basically as the boss who yells at them. Then there's the Christian who wants Jesus as prophet and priest, but no king. This produces a double standard. This Christian knows Jesus speaks the truth as the prophet, and he's loved as the priest, but they don't want his rule. They don't want his ownership in, his, in their life. So they know that when they sin, they know they'll be forgiven and they'll still be loved. But they still want to rule their own life. You see, this Christian does not see Jesus ruling over them. Just coming along at their convenience, at their request, when they need him. Allowed, they're allowed to come into the, their life, uh, Jesus is allowed to come in their life by invitation only. When Jesus is not king in our life, it leads to the Christian hypocrite. The one who calls the, uh, the Lord Jesus Lord and says his word is true, but then just goes on and does whatever they want to do. Because after all, this is mine. These are my clothes, this is my life, my house, my car, my work job, all that's mine. And if that's the case, then Jesus just becomes an assistant to our own rule. Lastly, there's the Christian who wants priest and king, but no prophet. This is the person where Jesus is the one who never offends. This Christian understands Jesus as priest, one who's filled with grace and love and mercy towards us. He's tolerant. They even see Jesus as king who rules over people, but seeks to extend that mercy and grace to all. But the hard-edged voice of a prophet into our life, into our heart, is not heard. So that this Jesus is seen as one who never would offend us, never would raise his voice at us, hurt our feelings, or command us to repent. Because he's so patient and tolerant in understanding, after all, God is love. Now we know that Jesus spoke in such a way as he was ministering here on the earth that many left him. And at the end of his ministry, most of the people were crying what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And yet we know at the same time that Jesus says he's gentle and lowly. But know this, as prophet, he speaks with the full force and power of his word. With the full force and power of his word. And like Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 29, the word of God is like a fire and a hammer. When this Christian sees Jesus who's not a prophet, here's what happens. Sinful beliefs and behaviors are blessed. Because to speak the truth, to command one to repent, takes a prophetic voice. And when that voice is removed, then that Christian begins to see sin in life 
and culture and society as acceptable in the sight of God. So here's the deal, folks. Why did Jesus come? First and foremost, most definitely, to save us from our sins. That's foundational. Without that, we're lost. But also, he came because we needed a priest, we needed a prophet, we needed a king. We needed a prophet to speak the truth into our lives. We needed a priest who would walk with us, and we needed a king who would rule over us. Amen? So, Father God, we're so grateful that not only are you our Savior, but you're the one who truly meets all of our needs. And I pray, God, that if there's any of us here tonight that has a need in any of those offices that you so completely and perfectly fulfill, uh, that, Lord, we would just fall in front of you, the one who is our prophet, the one who is our priest, the one who is our king, and let you do what only you can do in our lives, that you might receive all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. Amen.